Good deal. Good deal. We all heading back there? Wonderful. Hey, we've got Dale and Shauna Thakra with us today, if you all want to welcome them. Yeah. And there's one other human up here besides me. Um, would you, uh, Shauna, why don't you introduce this little guy? This is Noah James Thakra. And he How cute is. is he? <laughs> yeah, you can clap. Clap for the cuteness. That's good. He's 10 weeks, tech, well, we go by Sundays because he was born on a Sunday, so he's 10 weeks old. <laughs> he wasn't born on just any Sunday. That's right. He was born the first Sunday we were here in this building. Very cool. Very so we'll cool. always know <laughs> how old the church is and how, how old he is. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about how he, uh, he came to be your son. Okay. Um, this is where I have to go into summary mode. <laughs> uh, Dale and I have been married for eight and a half years, and during that time, God has not allowed us to have a child naturally. And so, oh, is it right? Um, and so we, we were living in California, and we moved out here about 18 months ago, and we thought maybe once we get to Arizona, life will calm down, and maybe that's when things will happen. And it didn't. And so uh, in November, just this past November, Dale came home from work one day and basically walked in the house and said, that's it, we're going to adopt. Start researching. <laughs> so executive order. You go do the work. I've made a decision. Love it. Love it. It's so, great. <laughs> so I started Googling. And um, that was, again, in November. And in January, we, we connected with, uh, well, technically, we connected with uh, Christian Family Care. And um, the day that we talked to them uh, over the phone, they said they were starting their classes the next night. So we had seven weeks of classes because we chose to go the route of private infant adoption. And so they require these seven weeks of classes. Um, and so we completed those. Let me do the switch of the pacifier here if you need it. <laughs> Um, we finished those, and then uh, they place you into what's called a matchbook. So you write up a little blurb about yourselves with pictures and whatnot, and they put you in a matchbook so that birth moms can choose you uh, to meet with you and then possibly choose to connect with you to have an open adoption where we re have a relationship with her, and um, she has a relationship with us and with um, her son. So we were in the matchbook. It took a little bit of time for us to get into the matchbook, but then once we were actually in it, it was only about a month after that that um, we got the call. Yeah, so tell us about the call. Okay. <laughs> well, it was a Monday uh, afternoon, and um, I was at my home away from home, Starbucks. And <laughs> as I was actually leaving the, pulling out of the driveway that morning, I said, you have your cell phone with you, and it's charged, right? Because you never know when the agency's going to call. And um, so I, it was about 12.30, and the, my phone rang. And it was our um, adoption worker, and she said, we have a baby who's been born. We didn't know when he had been born. And um, there's a few situations about his case that are different than what you had originally agreed on. Um, they give you the opportunity to kind of give parameters as to what, sounds terrible, <laughs> but we'll yeah. talk about it, but, you know, what you will accept and what you won't. And so um, there were a few extra challenges with his situation, and would you be willing to possibly um, still go forward with this? And we said yes. And again, that was about 12.30, 12.45 on Monday. Um, at 4.30 that afternoon, we were sitting in a hospital room meeting Noah and his mom. And at 1 o'clock the next day, <laughs> he was in our hands. So Praise God. That's really <laughs> cool. That was really cool. So Dale issued the decree in November, 
you you got hooked up with an agency in January, started the process, and then in May you had a baby. That's if I do the math right. That's actually less time than than a normal gestation period for a for a couple. So the Lord gave you grace in in preparing you. That's really really cool. Um, talk a little bit, Dale. Why don't you talk a little bit about just just this process, what it's, what it's been like, um, how, how you've connected. I mean, I, I, I know the, the whole thing's a little diffi- difficult to navigate, but um, th- talk, talk a little bit, of, talk us through that. Grab that mic. I'll try to talk you through I, it. I, I get very emotional when I, when I think about this. Which I love that. That means yeah. you love him. I, I do. And, it, and it's, the, thing that, the thing that's really drawn or really came into focus for me personally, and I think, I think for Shauna too, through this process is seeing ourselves as adopted children into the kingdom of God. And that has been uh, something that before Noah came into our lives that I knew theologically was true and I could think my way through it. I understood the doctrine of it, but until you actually have a firsthand experience of what that was like, at least that was true for for me. um, It it was like going from 2d into 3d. It, It just became so real and so um, incredibly, it just points to God's incredible grace yeah. that he would choose us to partake in his gifts. Yeah. What are some of the attributes or qualities of God that you've seen kind of magnified through this process? Yeah. <laughs> God is faithful. Amen. Yeah. God is a faithful God and... Um, you know, Shauna said we, we waited eight and a half years, and, uh, you know, we were busy. I mean, we were doing ministry. We, we were doing life, and um, it was always, hey, maybe it's this month, maybe it's this month, and it just eight and a half years passed, and, you know, d- during those times, there, you wouldn't be human if you didn't think, you know, what's wrong? Is God doesn't want to bless us that way, or, you know, are we in sin, or what, you know, all these thoughts that come into your head, but the thing we didn't know is that he had Noah for us. Amen. You're and, making and me it's, cry. It's just, yeah, he's faithful. Amen. Dale talked about um, this reality that, that God's like this rock um, in the midst of tumultuous or difficult times, and you, you want to hang on to the rock. That's really good, yeah. really, really good. Well, I totally forgot the next question I was going to ask you, so um, that's really exciting. Any other thoughts on your heart or th- anything you'd like to share? Well, there's an adoption conference coming up. Yes, that's what I was going to talk about. Thank you. I got swept right away there. Um, how many of you have either adopted or done foster care or are interested in adoption or support someone in, in your family who's, who's adopted? Yeah, a good number of you. That's really exciting. Uh, same, same amount of folks last hour. Um, the reality is God's doing something very special um, in, in the avenue of adoption with the church, which is good. Um, I think it's, it's right and good for the church to care for the fatherless. Even biblically, we would, we would uh, affirm that. So um, there's a really cool conference coming to town. It's actually going to be hosted at one of our redemption campuses, the Gilbert Campus, in October. Uh, it's the Together for Adoption Conference. And if you go to togetherforadoption.org, you can sign up for that. Uh, Christy and I are going. We're really excited about it. I'd encourage you uh, definitely to check that out. Also, we've got a, a, a group on the city uh, for, for folks that are interested in support supporting adoptive parents or are adoptive parents or, or in foster care or whatever. So if you have questions, uh, join that group and we, we can, uh, you know, we can dialogue there as well. So um, just super excited about how God has blessed you, about what God is doing. And um, I want to pray for you guys. So let's, let's pray. 
Father, we thank you uh, for your grace. God, we thank you for the Thakras. And Lord, as Dale said, we thank you for your faithfulness. Um, Lord, that, that's not just a concept. It's not just a word. It's a reality in our lives. It grounds our hearts. Um, God, it gives us hope when we don't understand life circumstances. And uh, God, we thank you. We thank you that you are faithful, that you can be trusted, that you've proven your love. And God, we see just a, just a small glimpse hit now here of your grace. Um, Lord, we pray for the Thackers. We pray that as, they, as, as little Noah grows up, that they would continue to be um, firmly established on the rock of your faithfulness. Um, and God, that you give them grace for each parenting season that lies ahead of them. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys thank them one more time? Very cool. God is good all the time, isn't he? Um, well, I want to introduce you guys this morning to a friend of mine, John Benzinger. Everybody say hi, John. Hi. Yeah, that was good. Let's try it again one more time. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Uh, so this is John. He has to stand there and look awkward while you all stare at him. Um, I do that well. Yeah, he does <laughs> Looking do awkward. Well. I've been getting to know John over the last few months. He's uh, this spring moved out from California and is the Bible teacher at Gilbert Christian High School. And so we've developed a little bit of a relationship. And he's part of our church. We'll be leading one of the uh, communities coming up this fall. And uh, has been coming with me to our preaching collective meetings each week as I prepare with all the other guys from other campuses. And uh, just really excited that John's going to be able to open God's word for us this morning. And having listened to him uh, at 830, I just will tell you, you're in for a treat. Um, but you're also in for a Bible bath, okay? So if you came and you went, I just want some feel-good stories. I don't really care about God's word. You could leave now. Uh, but I'd encourage you actually to stick around, hang in there, and uh, dive into God's word. So if you would actually grab uh, your Bible or open your iPhone app or however else you read God's word, um, we're going to go to Matthew 28 today. Uh, Matthew 28, John's going to actually take us around to a bunch of different passages that all relate to this reality of God's resurrection, but we want to read the story uh, to get started. So Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to stand together um, in honor of God's word. Uh, so we're going to read from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 9. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of of his feet, and worshipped him. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let's see. There you go. It is truly an honor to preach to you today, and because we don't know each other very well, I figured I could kind of break that tension by making a public confession to you. I thought that'd be a good idea. 
So, moved out here from California, as you heard, about four months ago. And when I lived in California, I didn't have cable. Um, that's not my confession, by the way. Um, <laughs> but when I moved here, the apartment complex where I live demands that you pay for cable. You don't get an option with that. You've got to put that in your rent. And so, um, for the past four months, here's my confession now. I have become addicted to ghost hunting shows. <laughs> I can't get enough of them. There's one show, Ghost Adventures. I've honestly seen every show. All, like, there's probably like one or two I haven't seen yet, but in that four-month period of time. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why I'm addicted to that. In fact, I could make a case for you over the next 45 minutes that all of you should watch that show, but I'm not going to do that. I, one of the reasons I am absolutely addicted to that show is because these guys will do the craziest things. They will, they will do stuff. I, I mean, I sit there and watch them and just go, they're absolute fools. And they tell you the reason we do this, quote, because we want evidence of life after death. We want to get it on tape. We want there to be proof for all to see that we live after we die. And they are not alone. Most religions teach that there is life after death. There's only this small minority of, of people that say that nothing happens after you die. The mass of people who have ever lived believe in life after death. And we as Christians believe in life after death. We have proof, not on some TV screen or on some little digital recorder. We have proof that life exists beyond the grave because of one singular event. Jesus rose from the dead. In 2 Timothy 2.8, God commands Christians to remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. So even though it's not Easter, we're going to do that this morning. And we're going to do that in three parts. Because there are some of you here who aren't quite sure about the resurrection. Did it happen? Did it not happen? So we're going to spend some time proving that the resurrection actually happened. Then for the bulk of us who are Christians, we're going to move from that quickly and camp in Okay, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead? How does that affect anything? And then we'll end by talking about what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? How does this event, this 2,000-year-old event, can that have an impact on my life? And so the big idea that I want you to see today, if you're like, I've only got six spots in my brain. I can't have seven. I've only got six. Those first six words is what you need to walk out of here today with. Jesus really rose from the dead. Christianity depends on this. It stands or falls on this issue. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Not only can Carrie Underwood not sing Jesus take the wheel if he didn't rise from the dead, but Christianity can't be true unless Jesus rose from the dead. If it happened, Christianity is true. If it didn't happen, it's false. You're wasting your time. I'm wasting my time. 2,000 years has been a big fraud if he is dead right now. That is what Christianity teaches. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says that if he is not raised, if the resurrection is not history, but it's myth or legend or fantasy, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is the core issue for Christianity. Last week you heard about the death of Christ, but the death of Christ means nothing without the resurrection. If he stayed dead, what you heard last week is not the truth about paying for your sins and giving you heaven. 
heaven when you die. None of that matters if he stayed dead. He must have risen from the dead. So Jesus really rising from the dead in history would be a miracle, which makes it automatically difficult for us to believe. So I'm going to start by spending a short amount of time proving that it actually happened. If you're like, I really need to go deep in this. If, you're, if, if after all this, you're like, oh, I wanted him to spend more time talking about this. Many of you probably already have um, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. The last four chapters are on the resurrection, proving this point. We are going to speed through this to help you. Point number one, since he actually rose from the dead, some of you in this room, you need to admit it. You need to admit that Jesus really, his resurrection really happened. You need to get to the point where it's not like, oh, that's fine theory. You need to embrace that as true. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to help you with this with two very simple truths. Two truths that are irrefutable. Believers, non-believers, skeptics, Christians, all can agree on these two facts. Fact number one, Jesus died. There is absolutely no way in the world... There's no possible way that, that Jesus survived the shock of blood loss after being, his back being torn apart by being whipped. Add to that, there's no way to add to that the exhaustion of carrying a 100 to 150 pound crossbeam over a mile, probably even longer than a mile. There's no way he could have survived that, plus his wrist being pierced, his ankles being pierced, all the blood loss and pain from that. Add to that the psychological torture and pain of nine hours pulling yourself up on those nails so you can get a breath, people mocking you, wondering, is this all true? Why have you forsaken me? And then add to that a spear shoved up under his ribs, piercing his heart. There is no possible way that he survived that. Fact number one, Jesus died. And fact number two, the tomb is empty. The tomb was empty. Four independent witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all writing, affirming the the tomb was empty. Non-Christian historians, people writing of the day, people who were against Christianity even said the tomb was empty. In fact, in Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15, you have the first apologetic against the resurrection, and it was the disciples stole the body. Even that lie proves what? The tomb was empty. Even their lie proves the tomb was empty. You re- and, and not only that, think about it. Where did Christianity start? It didn't start 50 miles away in some backwoods community where nobody knows anything. It happened in the city where he was resurrected. If this was all a big sham, and if he really didn't rise from the dead, well, then you could just, the, the Romans or the Jews could have just taken the body out and gone, here he is, he didn't rise from the dead, he's in that tomb, and let me take him out and show you he's dead. No, that fact he died, coupled with the tomb being empty. Those two facts can shatter any, almost any objection that you ever get from your own brain to your unbelieving uncle to that coworker who's like, I, Christianity, whatever, rise from the dead, that's all myth and fairy tale. Those two facts of history can help you answer the most common objections to Christianity. The first one, one major objection, is that Jesus merely passed out on the cross. He kind of fell asleep, a lot of exhaustion and pain. He just, it just made him pass out. But when he was wrapped up in all that cloth and those cloth, they, they, put, they put spices inside of that and the cool of the tomb just kind of woke him up. You can read this. This is an actual theory by people with PhD after their name and doctor before it. This is what they teach. He kind of just woke him up and then he was able to take off all of that burial clothing with his pierced hands and all that 
you know, pierced heart. And then he was able to get up and actually walk, even though he's got these massive wounds in his ankles. And then with wounded ankles and wounded arms and a pierced side and crown of thorns and broke open back, he was able to move this thousands of pound rock out of the way. Overpower this, this group of guards that were there to make sure that he stayed in the grave and then proclaim for everybody to see, I'm risen from the dead. Sorry. What is the one irrefutable fact that destroys that theory? Jesus died. This wasn't like that dude in South Africa last week who woke up in the morgue after being dead for 21 hours. This was a real death. He died. There's no way that that objection works. Second objection. This was merely a legend. People really liked Jesus, and they just couldn't believe that he died. And there was a lot of really good benefits to keeping him alive. So they kind of made up this legend. Made up this legend that Jesus, uh, he rose from the dead. This is also common theory. Myth became fact. Question. We're just making up this story that Jesus rose from the dead, that it's just some myth that, 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 that became fact. Question, how would anybody be able to disprove that legend? It's the tomb. Wouldn't the tomb still have a body in it? It would. If myth became fact, there'd still be a body. Same for the third major objection that people bring to it. The disciples just hallucinated. They were just so broken. They missed their master they were just so, they, want, they, they were hoping for the kingdom and they were, they were just waiting for him to, to rule and reign. And when he died, they were just so heartbroken that they, start, they started to hallucinate Jesus. They started to have visions of him coming back and rising from the dead and that he was going to establish the kingdom and reign. And so they just had these hallucinations. They were really grief stricken, but they hallucinated it. Question, how would you answer that? Anybody? If I have a hallucination of somebody that was dead and is now alive, how can I prove that that was a hallucination and not real? The tomb would still have a body in it. Right? Objection numbers one, two, and three, dead. Just with those two facts. And those are the three most common objections to Christianity and the resurrection. Obliterated with just two facts. Now this fourth objection accounts for the two facts. Namely, that the disciples stole the body and then lied about the resurrection. That accounts for a dead Jesus and that accounts for an empty tomb. So then we've got to think, okay, this is going to take a little bit more time, but let's just think about that for a minute. Disciples stole the body or, or somebody stole the body. We'll say it's the disciples, but let's think about that. Let's take a step back for a minute and say, who would steal the body? Would it be the Jews? No, they hated Jesus and didn't want to support him. What about the Romans? No, it was good that he was dead because of the insurrection and all the war, the, the, the fighting that could have happened. It's good that he's gone. What about the disciples? The disciples stole the body. Let's think about the disciples for a minute. Were they this, this, band of brothers who were just like ready to take over the world after Jesus got arrested? Were they just like, let's go fight Rome and, and let's, just pro, let, let's just be strong and courageous and, and let's, just, let's just take them down and let's just go win the day for Jesus? Is that how they were when he got arrested? I see you guys shaking your head. You can interact with me a little bit. No, they were not like that. They were cowards. They were disillusioned. I mean, Peter, Peter like cowered and he ran away from two junior high girls that were like, hey, we saw you with him. And he's like, no, you didn't. I'm not. They were not like, they, they were off. They were just these pathetic, disillusioned cowards. Some of them even went back to fishing. They're like, this, this guy was just a joke. And I guess we're going fishing. They have no motive to steal the body. 
There is nothing in this whole thing that would make them say, hey, I've got a great plan. Let's make up a lie. When I lie, when you lie, we lie because we think there's some benefit to our lying. They're like, all right, let's think about this. Let's steal the body, and then we're going to become rich. We're going to become famous. We're going to get a lot of chicks. We're going to get a lot of money. This is going to be awesome. I mean, that worked for Muhammad, worked for Joseph Smith. It'll work for them, too. That, they were like the first ones, right? They're the first ones that made it up, right? No. They got tortured. Family ostracized them. They got, they got kicked out of the synagogue. And they got, some of them got murdered, persecuted, head chopped off, crucified upside down. This was the benefit for stealing the body, really? See, most people... Many people, not most people, but many people die for what they believe is true. Nobody dies for what they know is false. Nobody dies for what they know is false. So you're telling me that they did all of that because they stole the body and did a weekend at Bernie's kind of thing with him? Not exactly. Not exactly. The disciples didn't hallucinate. Disciples didn't steal the body. Jesus was, did not like fall asleep and wake up again. The resurrection actually happened. Myth did not become fact. Jesus really rose from the dead is the best explanation. We're going to run through this really fast. It's the best explanation for the empty tomb. It's the best explanation for 500 people who claim to see him. It's the best explanation of a skeptic named James who was his half-brother and thought Jesus was crazy. It is the best explanation for Paul the Apostle going from Osama bin Laden to Billy Graham in a matter of a second. It's the only explanation for that. On top of, the resurrection was the central theme of Christianity, if you read the book of Acts, that is the message. Jesus rose from the dead. We are witnesses of this. We saw it. It wasn't put on one day of the calendar, Easter, and we celebrate the resurrection that day. It was the center of Christianity. Why would it be the center of Christianity unless it happened? Next, there is no way that these religious Jews would reject Jewish theology, namely like monotheism, that there is one God, and they go from that to Jesus is God. There's no way that they would reject the fact the Messiah is going to rule and reign to the Messiah is going to die before he reigns. There is no way that they would reject Jewish theology unless Jesus rose from the dead because they're risking their own souls in hell forever by rejecting Judaism to embrace Christ. Second, seventh, there's no way that they're going to willingly reject Jewish practice like the Sabbath day. Things like I don't know, sacrifices, obeying the rabbis. There's no way that they would say, do not follow the rabbis, follow Jesus, because by doing that, again, they are risking the damnation of their souls. The only thing that would get religious Jews to reject theology as well as practice is the resurrection. Add to that the willing of, willingness of the, the 11 disciples and a bunch of other converts to gladly give their life to witness to the resurrection. Add to that the rise and spread of the Christian church. Think about it. The Christian church didn't start out like in, in I don't know, like in Islam with a conqueror prophet who, who gains more and more power and conquers more people and gains more money and builds this momentum. Christianity started with a dead leader, with 11 cowards. One of, those, one of the disciples committed suicide, and then you've got this group of women. That's what they started with. And in less than, in less than two months, they... they 
thousands of people have come to Christ. And in less than in like 300 years, Christianity's taken over the Roman Empire without firing a single shot. To today, there are over a billion people on this planet who believe in the resurrection. And the church has been the major driving force in humanitarian efforts, education, philanthropy. How do you explain that? Add to that the transformation of your own life. Now, you could look at all the 10 of those, and you could say, well, all kinds of people get transformed. Or you could say all kinds of movements start small and get big. I'm not talking about explaining each one away. I'm talking about how do you explain all of them together? How do you take each one of them, put them together, and say, what's the explanation for that? There is only one thing, the resurrection. You must admit that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It really happened. And if you're sitting there still skeptical, I think it's not because you don't believe in the resurrection. I think it's because you don't believe in miracles. Miracles can't exist. So let me just say this to you. If you can believe God exists, you can embrace miracles. It's not too hard. It's a logical jump from God exists to miracles can happen. Try to do that quickly because where I want to stay, where I want to camp with all of you, is point number two. It's one thing to say this really happened. The question for you, Christian, is what does this mean? What's the point? What does this prove? Is there some, okay, this, this thing happened, this, this event took place, what does it mean? My goal for you as we slow down a little bit, as I race through that really fast, as we slow down, I want you to think with me, okay, what's the point of all that? Five points for this. As you come to know that the, what the resurrection really means, this is the first thing the resurrection really means. The resurrection proves the Bible is God's word. So now you're going to get your Bible bath. So you guys, fingers feeling good? Good. Stretch them out a little bit so you're ready to turn. And I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, I want you to pay, turn to page 910 in the Pew Bibles. Page 9, 10, Acts chapter 2, and verse 22. Now, Peter, this is the first day, this is the first sermon, and his whole goal is to prove that we are witnesses of a miraculous event that was prophesied a thousand years ago. A thousand years ago, David wrote this passage, and when he was speaking, he was not speaking about himself, he was speaking about the resurrection of Christ. Verse 22, Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Listen up. Listen to me. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? David says concerning him, why was it not possible for the death to take him down? Because David said, I saw the Lord always before me. The scriptures say, he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, 
I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he died and was buried and his tomb is with us in this day. You can go to it and visit it. Being therefore a prophet and knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are witnesses. We have seen it. It's not a witness in our heart that makes me feel good. We have seen him. The tomb is empty. It is real. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing because he is at the right hand of God, not like in some vision, but is actually there. The Spirit has fallen, the church has been born, and you can be saved. All of that because the tomb is empty. This is the, the idea here, like I said, is that when Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible makes this astonishing pronouncement. The Messiah is going to die and rise again. That is a prediction. That's not like Nostradamus kind of stuff. That's not like the people on TV. They're like, oh, I think you're going to have a good day. Like, it's not that. It is a thousand years ago. David said the Messiah will die and rise again, and it happened in history. The Bible is true. That's the conclusion. You should listen to it. You should, you should um, obey it. You should base your life on it because this is God's word. God is the one that can speak about the future and cause it to come to pass, pass a thousand years later. The Bible is true because of the resurrection. Second, the Bible, Jesus' resurrection proves that he's a true prophet. Deuteronomy 18 says that a prophet, if he comes and speaks in my name, every single thing he says must come to pass. There's not one thing that he says that cannot come to pass. If anything, even the smallest thing doesn't come to pass, isn't, doesn't happen in history, guess what? He's false. Jesus makes this astonishing claim. I want you to see it. In, in, in John chapter 10. Turn to John chapter 10. I want you to see this in the Bible. This is so outrageous. It's page 896. You can tell I'm excited about this. He makes this astonishing claim. Listen to this. John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're going to do what? No one takes it from me. What is that it? Speak to me. His life. That's right. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. What? You, okay, you're going you're to be a martyr. You're going to die for what you believe in. Great. No, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise myself from the dead. I don't know about you. Somebody says that. It's like, that's a, that's a big statement right there, man. You don't pull that off. I don't really think I should listen to you. Guess what? He pulled it off. He died and he rose himself from the dead. That's pretty astonishing. Those words, that guy, I, I should listen to that guy. That guy has got something going on that no other guy has ever had in the history of the world. He can make predictions about rising himself from the dead. That's a statement that he backs up with reality because he's a true prophet. You should listen to everything he says. You should obey everything he says. And by the way, you should bank on every single promise that he makes. Why? Not because it makes you feel good, because you have a good history with the church or whatever. It's because he rose from the dead. He's alive right now. 
He's a true prophet. Third, this one's awesome. Turn to Romans chapter 14. The resurrection proves Jesus is Lord over all. Romans 14, it's on page 948, I believe, in your pew Bibles. Romans 14, 9 says, start in verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this reason, owning you, this is the reason, for, to own you, this is the reason Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord, Master, King, both of the dead and of the living. His purpose, the reason he died was to own you. And, and in his ownership, he proves, I'm the Lord of those who live and I'm the Lord of those who die. It proves that he is the Lord. And let's think about this for a minute. Had Jesus not risen, we, would say, we could say he loves us, he died for us. We could say he still exists. We could say, yeah, he exists right now, um, just like, you know, grandma and grandpa still exist right now. We could say that about him, but we could never, ever say Jesus is Lord. You know why? Because death would have mastered him. Death masters everybody. Saints and sinners, presidents and custodians, everybody. Death masters everybody. There is nobody that death does not reign over. Every single one of us must bow to death. If Jesus stayed dead, then death would be his master too. The grave if he, was, if he was overcome by the grave, then the grave would be his king. If he was a lifeless corpse, he would be no different than every single billions of people who have ever lived on this planet who lived and died. No different than them. By rising from the dead, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He is Lord of the living and the dead. And he is Lord over death itself. The one thing that every single one of us, death proclaims victory to us all the time. Death tells you, I'm in charge, when he takes your friend or he takes a loved one. And he especially says, I own you, when he comes for your name and your ticket is up and it gets punched. Death says, you belong to me. And Jesus does not bow to death. Jesus stands over death and says, death, where is your victory? You have no victory over me. I'm in charge here. And the thing that makes us cower, the thing that we must bow to, Jesus stands above as the victor. He stands over it just like, I don't know, like your brother did after he beat you up. He stands over it and says, I'm in charge. I'm the king. I'm the Lord over everything, even death. That is an amazing truth from the resurrection. Fourth, turn to Romans chapter 1 verse 4. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Start in verse 3. Concerning the Son, so we're talking about Jesus. Concerning the Son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Notice this. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Truth about Jesus is that he is God with skin. And there's no way you and I would have known that if he had stayed dead. Who is, who is the one that could stand over death and say, I'm the victor? Who is the one that you can look at and you can see death did not stop him. He reigns over it. Who, here you have God 
who says, I'm going to lay down my life and I have the authority to raise my life. Who in the world has authority over life and death? Only God. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was a clear proclamation that Jesus is more than a man. He is God. And number five, this one is also awesome. Turn to Romans chapter 4, page 942. The resurrection proves that Jesus accomplished your salvation. He accomplished it. It's finished. It's done. Look at Romans chapter 4. Let's start in verse 22. It says, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Talking about Abraham, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He, righteousness, think perfection, never sinned, always for every second did everything right. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Who, has delivered up for our, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I want you to notice two things in this passage. First, verse 24, it says that God raised him from the dead. So you have the Father raising Jesus, you have the Son raising Jesus, this, this, this complementary action of the Trinity. They're both involved with this process. But this should tell you something. When Jesus was on the cross and he's, he's agonizing over the pain of death and taking on the sins of the world, what did he scream out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this passage, you see that that forsaking of Jesus only lasted a little while. And what that should tell you is that Jesus' sacrifice pleased God. It should tell you that his perfect life, God looked at his perfect life and said, that's good. And he looked at his substitutionary death and said, that's good. I affirm that what you did, I am pleased with, I am satisfied with your work on the cross and in your life, so I will raise you from the dead and proclaim that. That is the first thing that this passage tells you. And the second thing that this passage tells you, as we look at this and there's no penalty for sin, there's no more wrath to endure. There's no more guilt to suffer from. It says that he was raised for our justification. What in the world does that mean? Think about it again. Had Jesus stayed dead, we could not have knowledge, certainty, or the assurance that full atonement had been made for our sins. There's no possible way, if he did not rise from the dead, that you could look at, you could look at the Christian message, hear the Christian message, and say, okay, I'll buy that. Because this is how it would go. Believe in Jesus. He died for your sins. He paid the punishment for your sins on the cross. And if you believe in Jesus, you, you too can have eternal life. So give your life to him. And someone will say, why? And if you don't have the resurrection, you know what your answer is? Uh, it'll make you feel good about yourself. Uh, we're really hoping against hope that Jesus rose from the dead, or not rose from the dead, that he paid for sins. We have no idea if he really did because we have no evidence that, that anything changed after that because he's dead and he stayed dead. The only way that you can have assurance that your sins are paid for, that you will hear not guilty. In fact, you'll not hear not guilty from God when you stand before him. You will hear case thrown out for lack of evidence because all your sins were put on Christ and he was punished for your sins and all of his sins, all of his perfection came to you. So when your account comes up, he sees perfection. There's no way that could ever happen if Jesus stayed dead. You'd have no hope of that. 
he had to rise from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, it proclaimed the payment is finished. You can go free. Your sins are forgiven. When you die, you will be with him forever. There's no hope of that. Assurance in your heart. There's no hope that, it act, that God actually said, I'm, I'm pleased with that if there was no resurrection. So as we, you look at how does this really matter, the resurrection, do you see that what you heard last week about the death of Christ needs the resurrection? That if there was no resurrection, there's no good news? That if there was no resurrection, all we've been talking about in this doctrine series, starting with the Trinity and creation and culminating with the kingdom and end times, none of that would matter. All of it would fall apart unless Jesus rose from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, it's all true. And because it's all true, he can say, John eleven twenty five, I and I alone am the resurrection. I and I alone am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Only he can say that, and he backs it up. He puts, he puts cred to that statement by rising himself from the dead. But he doesn't just leave it there. Because when he's talking, when he says this statement to Martha, he, this passage ends with, do you believe it? Do you believe this? He's saying that to her before he rose from the dead. We're saying that after. So what does this mean for you personally? How does this truth impact, can this truth impact your life? Can an almost 2,000-year-old event make a difference in your life? Can it bring you comfort? Can it give you hope in the midst of, of doubt or in the midst of pain or in the midst of uncertainty? Can it, can it answer the doubts that you have when it's late at night and you're laying there and you're like, is this really true? Is there really a God? Does this all, is this all really going to happen? Can this make an impact on your life? For the earliest Christians, the resurrection was not like a, a life insurance policy guaranteeing life after death that they reviewed once a year on a certain holiday. The resurrection was the source of Christian life. It was the source of Christian faith. It was the source of Christian hope. It was this one fact. Jesus really rose from the dead. That fact propelled them through martyrdom. That fact propelled them through difficulties and persecution and famine and everything. That fact alone made them say, I don't care what's going on in my life. Jesus rose from the dead and that truth impacts me now and I want it to impact you now. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. This truth can be like a phone call that you get. When you go home today and you get a phone call from some lawyer that says, you have an uncle that just left you a billion dollars. You think that would change your life? The kind of good news would have a radical impact on your life from that moment on. And if this, this truth, for many of you, has done that, and for some of you it hasn't, so that's why we're starting in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, because the, the first way that this matters, that as, you, as I want you to enjoy what the resurrection, um, that the resurrection really matters, for point number three, the first way that this really matters is that the resurrection, belief in the resurrection provides salvation. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Romans 10, 9, famous passage says, 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You actually cannot be a Christian and deny the resurrection. You have to believe in the resurrection. You have to believe that there's an empty tomb. You have to say, my life, I'm banking on this with all my life that Jesus rose from the dead. If you have not done that, if you're still like, oh, I'm not sure, you are not saved. Important fact, belief in the resurrection provides salvation. That's something to enjoy. Salvation is something to enjoy. But because I assume most of us are Christians here, point number two, the resurrection proves Christianity is true. And I want you to see this. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. It's on page 961. The resurrection proves Christianity is true. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 makes this statement abundantly clear. I love the sound of those pages turning. It's like music to my ears. I love that sound. 15, 14, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's empty. It's pointless. And you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who've died in Christ, they're gone if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And oh, by the way, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're pathetic. And by the way, verse 15, every single time a preacher said Jesus rose from the dead, if he did not rise from the dead, we're calling God a liar. This is pointless. Go home and watch football in a couple months. Party it up because this is all a sham. You're wasting your time. I'm wasting my time. It's all pointless unless he rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, there's a huge point and being involved in church and coming here and listening to preaching and getting involved. It all matters. For that one reason, Jesus rose from the dead. It is true. But instead of that, let's just make it personal for a moment. Why are you a Christian? Why are you coming to church every Sunday? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you feel bad when you don't? Are you a Christian because, I don't know, you grew up in church and your mom made you come here? Are you a Christian because, I don't know, you like tradition or you, or you like communities of people or, or you like the way that the preaching makes you feel and, and God's word just really builds me up. It gives me purpose and hope and a future and all that. Is that why you are a Christian? Let me tell you the only reason you should be a Christian is because Jesus rose from the dead. The only reason you should be a Christian is because Christianity is true. None of those things matter. There are all kinds of other religions and other theologies that can make you feel really good, give you a sense of purpose, make you feel good about yourself and and cause you to help other people. There are all kinds of things that make you do that, but it's not true. The issue is, is this true? It is if Jesus rose from the dead. It's all true. All of it's true. There's only one reason you should be a Christian, and that's because it's true. And that will get you through severe pain. That will get you through severe doubt. That will get you through times of struggle when the bills don't match. That will get you time, through times of struggle when, when your husband or, or, or your wife aren't Christians and you're constantly fighting this truth right here makes it all worth it. In 2007, my grandpa died, 
And he was like more like a father than a grandpa to me. Um, and so I remember when he died struggling so hard with how could a good God do something like this? Our family is destroyed and, and, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and I remember I, I didn't come out of where I was living for a week. I just stayed in my room just thinking and struggling and, and, and trying to prove Christianity wrong so I could be free from it. And I could not get past this one point. This point kept destroying every argument I had against Christianity. It was this one point. Jesus really rose from the dead. I'm not making that up. I'm not saying that for some kind of like, I don't know, preaching moment. That is the honest to God truth. That one sentence propelled me through that time. I can't get around it. I can't get over it. I can't get through it. This one truth, Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, can propel you through the most difficult times. Third, the resurrection promises immortality. Look at verse 42. First Corinthians 15, 42. He's talking about your resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection body that Jesus had, has. And he says, verse 42, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. The body that goes into the ground like a seed that is sown, it goes into the ground, it is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It was sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Drop down to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, those who die, inherit the imperishable, the kingdom. Kingdom never dies, so people who never die need to be in that kingdom that never dies. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when dying bodies become immortal, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory over death through Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection is the promise that you will be raised. That death is, not the fine, death is not your end. That the people who you love, who have died, they will rise again. That, this is the, that the final word is not death. The final word is life. That is a great comfort if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Fourth, Jesus' resurrection can energize your sanctification your growth, your change. This long chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 57 verses, he's proving the resurrection, saying this really happened. And then one verse to say, now what should you do about it? Verse 58. My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain steadfast, not tossed back and forth intellectually, not compromising morally, 
not doubting emotionally, but strong, established, firm in your faith. No professor can pull you down. No situation can pull you down. Strong, steadfast. Next word, immovable. Not deviating from the course. Not straying from the path. Not going after the, the, the idols of this world and going, that will give me joy, that will give me peace. No, it will not. It will slow you down, and it will slow down ministry, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why should you serve? Why should you give? Why should you stay strong in the midst of doubt, strong in the midst of pain? Why should you stand firm when things are coming at you and life is like bowling you over with waves of, 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 of discontent or, or anything else? Why should you stand firm? Jesus Christ really rose from the dead and you will too you will too it's just like you can struggle through phoenix sky harbor airport when you know you're going to hawaii right the destination's like i can get through this garbage right now because hawaii's coming and it can do the same for you the resurrection can do the same for you if you affirm the big idea that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It can propel your holiness. It can cause you to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. It can propel the mission. Again, resurrection was the central message of the early church in the book of Acts. Their message was propelled by this. The resurrection happened. Jesus rose from the dead. So I don't care what you say to me, coworker. I don't care what you say to me, you know, family member who mocks me. I don't care. Jesus rose from the dead and this mission will continue when I'm dead because he's coming again. He's alive and he's reigning. He's praying for me now. And there will come a day when the, when the one who is Lord over all will be recognized by every human being who has ever existed when all of them bow and they look to him and say, he is the Lord, he's the king, he's the master of everything. That day is coming, and I know that day is coming, person who's mocking me because Jesus rose from the dead. Right? That's right, you should clap for that because that's huge. He rose from the dead. And I want to end on this note. So I want you to turn to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is the passage that, that Peter was quoting on the day of Pentecost. Psalm 16. Remember, Peter quotes this in Acts chapter 2 to give, to give proof that Jesus rose from the dead to say this was prophesied in the Old Testament, the Messiah would die and rise again. But notice this verse 11. Based on remembering that his resurrection points to our resurrection, keeping that point in mind right now. Let's read verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. Verse 9, 10, resurrection there. So application, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The joy you and I, we talk about this passage and we talk about, oh, wasn't worship great? A joy in his presence. We talk about prayer, Bible reading or serving. Joy in his presence, praise God. But all the joy that you and I experience right now is like the joy of just smelling Thanksgiving dinner. It makes you happy. You're like, oh, I can't wait to eat it. The joy that he's talking about when we are literally at the right hand of God, when we are literally in his presence, is like eating the meal. Pleasures forevermore. Right hand, fullness of joy. Why? Jesus 
rose from the dead. That one truth can be like that lawyer that calls and says, your uncle left you a billion dollars, your whole life is different. If you believe that it's true. Let's pray. Jesus, I can even talk to you right now. You are actually there. I'm talking to an actual person right now because you rose from the dead. You proved you were Lord. You proved you were God. You proved that your teachings and and that you are a true prophet and you accomplished our salvation all in that event. That event can give us life and hope and peace. It can give us endurance through trials. It can, it can give us the, the power we need to say no to sin. It can give us the boldness we need to continue your mission. Your mission didn't die with you. It was energized because you rose from the dead. So I thank you for that. I thank you for these truths. I pray that you would bless every single person in this room in specific ways with this truth for the glory of your name. Amen. That is great news, isn't it? And so we're going to respond accordingly. Uh, You don't respond to great news and go, eh, pretty cool. You respond like, yeah. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to have a a yeah moment together. Um, So let me give you just some instructions and direction on how we're going to respond um, we're gonna, the band's going to come back up. We're going to sing. We're going to sing loud. I'd invite you to, to really um, rejoice in this moment and rejoice in these truths that we're going to sing about. And so join in with that. Uh, another way that you can respond is to um, get out that connection card that you filled out earlier, that white connection card. Um, if you need to finish filling that out, that's fine. Uh, but we'd invite you during this response time to put it in the baskets or on the black tables or in the mailboxes in the back. Um, Along with that, we're going to celebrate communion. That would be why you'd come to the, to the tables. And communion, the Lord's Supper, is bread, which symbolizes Jesus' body, and uh, the, the cup, which symbolizes Jesus' blood that was given for us, that he really did pay for our sins on the cross and raise victoriously over death. And so if you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, if you would say that Jesus is your master, then we would invite you to celebrate communion. The elements are up in these corners, uh, as well as uh, back there behind the pole in the center. And we would just invite you at any point when you're ready, um, when your heart's prepared, when you feel like you can go to that table, eager to rejoice in God and what he's done in Jesus' resurrection, then we would invite you to come. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Christ, um, or you're unclear about what communion means, please do not feel pressure to come forward and to take it. Um, Only do it if you know that Jesus is your master and if you know what you're doing. If you've got questions about it, or if you would like to just pray with somebody, uh, regardless of who you are or what your background or anything at all, uh, there's some men and women in the back over uh, your right shoulder in the corner. They'll be there for the rest of the service to pray for you and to encourage you. If you need someone to talk to as well, they're there for you. So um, we're going to respond. The band's going to come back up. And when your heart is prepared, we'd invite you to come to the table.